0: CEE Central Europe Explained an IDM podcast series
1: powered by Erste Group Episode 15 United in Diversity with Vladislava Gubalova Hello and welcome back to CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Sebastian schafer i I'm Managing Director at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe in Vienna. In today's episode, we will focus on the so-called East-West dichotomy and look at solutions to foster European unity. With this in mind, I'm very glad to welcome Vladislava Gubalova, Research Fellow at the Future of Europe Program at the Globsec Policy Institute in Bratislava, Vlady Thank you very much for joining us and welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me, glad to be here.
1: Vladi, we will start with a more or less obvious statement. If we look at the top five jobs of the European Union, the President of the European Commission, the President of the European Council, the President of the Central Bank, the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, and the President of the European Parliament, all these positions are held by Western European members. We have Germany, Belgium, France, Spain, and Italy. So basically, almost all of the founding members are holding these top jobs. We have had a discussion about this when uh, we talked about the study that actually Globsec was doing, already analyzing the previous situation the European Union and even after the new commission came into office nothing has changed. No central and eastern European member country is filling the top positions in the European Union. Why are these top positions only held by representatives of these so-called old member states? Does the European Union need these old member states to take control and isn't this something That creates a hierarchy that we don't want to have in the European Union?
0: Thank you. (laughs) A very, very highly charged question, I would say. It certainly creates some kind of a divining line, right? Uh, We do talk about West-East dichotomy quite a bit. Unfortunately, we keep seeing that those lines continue to exist. Not only they continue to exist, but as you pointed out through these top jobs that are held solely by uh, Western European uh, member states or founding members. So history in mind here, it shows that they are somewhat divisive lines where these balances are continuing and they are not uh, being dealt with. Right. And let's let's keep in mind that there is a sense that uh, these days, Central Europe has been seen as a troublemaker not as a constructive contributor towards the future challenges of Europe. And uh, it's seen uh, through such lenses in many in the EU institutions and in many Western member states as well. And then on the other hand, we see that uh, Central and Eastern Europe continues to see itself not as an equally treated partner, often dismissed and not consulted. Um, So this balance, as you pointed out, is top European institutional jobs It's really another easily used argument towards unequal partnership. And just to um, boost the numbers of the obvious that you said, uh, there was recently a study that came out just two weeks ago by the European Democracy Consulting. And when they measured, it really shows that in the top appointments, Central and Eastern Europeans are holding only 25 and 2% respectively of these jobs. So the equality is certainly non-existing. We will have to be careful in uh, um, not uh, promoting or increasing these divisions, uh, even if it comes to uh, top jobs or administrative jobs, institutional jobs, and further on the line um, in, within, the, within the European Union.
1: Thank you. Now, when we follow up with this, also all institutions of the European Union are more or less based in Western European member countries. It's clear that it maybe doesn't really make sense to move one of the uh, top institutions to another location, given that more or less there's already the discussion going on with the division of Brussels and Strasbourg on the parliament. And everybody wants to more or less relocate everything and center it around Brussels. But there are also EU agencies And we can see that they are underrepresented in the Central and Eastern European member countries. And even when we had the opportunity in the course of the Brexit, two of the agencies that were located in the UK have been moved to old member states, again, founding members, the Netherlands and France. There was a big discussion um, about an agency. Maybe they're not that well known, but in the current situation, they become a bit more prominent. The EMA, had been discussed to, amongst others, be moved to Slovakia. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the discussion was going on and how that was perceived in uh, Slovakia when it uh, ultimately went to Amsterdam?
0: Yes, uh, actually, that's a very good example that even when opportunity arises to relocate such agencies, which are some way a token of pride in hosting, right, and given the balance of, of locations, it would have been a great opportunity to strike a positive note. It is indeed the case that the European Medicines Agency was moved to Amsterdam while during the application process, Slovakia, with its capital city, Bratislava, where I am located at the moment. Um, applied for hosting the agency. It wasn't only Slovakia, it was Bulgaria as well, for example. There were other uh, Central and Eastern European countries that applied to host. But the case in Slovakia, it's an interesting one, because the application itself actually was pretty well drafted. Uh, and in a sense, much was going for Bratislava. Its location close to other hubs as Budapest and Vienna and uh, Prague, its city life and services, the closeness to international airports, the office premises. So the checks on the list were being done very nicely, and the government at the time actually popularized the beat, so it became a domestic issue. So. On one hand, if the agency had relocated to Bratislava, I really think due to this making this bid so popular domestically, it would have been boosting uh, the effect of Slovakia starting to feel that the EU is closer to them. And uh, to some extent, it belongs to them, right? There will be tangibility attached to it, um, and besides the pride of hosting uh, the agency. But on the other hand, what happened when when, when Slovakia actually lost the bid, kind of amplified the sentiment that uh, Brussels is too far, it dictates without consulting us, you know, these popular myths about the European Union. So here it's a clear example where the location of a European agency, and granted this is not the most significant institutional structure in the EU, but it can swing public opinion in the region. And so far, uh, with this little success, really it has contributed more so for a disappointment than positive feelings
1: and sentiments. You mentioned in the first statement that uh, Central and Eastern Europe is perceived as a troublemaker Uh, at the moment. uh, You mentioned now this myth. We had that in a previous episode where Thomas Dietz said, in the end, for many, the EU itself is a kind of myth. And with this lack of representation and this image of being a troublemaker, uh, which is more or less something on the institutional and decision-maker process. But when we break that down to the general population that maybe don't know that much about uh, the importance of agencies or the locations of them, but nevertheless, this distance and this feeling, is this something that transposes also to the general population and perpetuates this myth of, Brussels being far away, decisions taken over our heads, um, does it ultimately then not even foster Euroscepticism?
0: I think that it certainly gives ammunition to those who promote uh, myths about the EU. It increases mistrust. Uh, You've said it already, that this distance between a citizens, an ordinary citizen living in Central and Eastern Europe and this idea of the EU right lack of tangibility is increased the feel that Central and Eastern Europe is not treated as equal partner. Uh, again, it's perpetuating uh, further. So, yeah, it plays easily in the hands of Euroskeptics. Uh, but I think what is even more unfortunate is that a great mass of the population in the region, it just simply has indifferent attitude towards the EU. And so when we have these division lines, uh, like this clear underrepresentation in top positions or so few... Permanent uh, structure that are located in the region, um, it's making it much harder actually for us, those who are committed to incite the feeling of ownership of the EU here in the region. Uh, it's really hard for us then to show this tangible commitment and rewards that are coming from the EU side. And so it does put into disadvantage uh, those that are working hard in really bringing knowledge about the EU um, and bringing uh, this feeling of ownership and belonging with all benefits and responsibilities.
1: When we take these points that we have talked about and think about what is, on the other hand, possible from the side of the Central and Eastern European member states, when we see that these positions are not filled, when we see that this distance exists, when we see that institutions are are not moving uh, closer to the citizens of the Central and Eastern European member states, is there something that the countries themselves and the citizens themselves could do to help overcoming this divide?
0: Certainly. Um, I think that In this case, in a sense, both sides needs to be proactive, right? The the Central and Eastern European governments, as well as the EU. So let's start with the EU, and I will and I, uh, let's flip through your question a little bit. Now, on the side of the EU, there needs to be a political will, right, to stop doing business as usual, and this being, namely, the top positions to be occupied by Western Europeans. Uh, or founding members, uh, you know, we have one exception, right, Donald Tusk for one cycle to make this <laughs> pretty much 2.2%, 2. 2.5% 2. of top jobs occupied by Central and Eastern Europeans. But what we need to see is, uh, let me say it this way, a modernization on the HR side of the EU, right? Can uh, this, this, this can send a very important and positive signals to the region. And uh, I think that there needs to be a very much focused and conscious effort to train, encourage, and promote the personnel uh, from the Central and Eastern European countries uh, in the EU administration. Right? So There needs to be a clear goal uh, to try to, to achieve a balance. So then needs to go on the EU side, we're talking about political will, right? Uh, so for the top positions, and also a will from the institutional administrative side to ensure that the personnel coming from these countries are capable to to represent the EU institutions uh, from a lower level to the highest level. Now with that said, and you pointed out very, very correctly that uh, we cannot have uh, the governments here in the region just to stay idle and expect this one way fix, right? To the opposite. Let's be more active. <laughs> this should be our motto <laughs> in the region. Um, let's propose constructive ideas. Let, uh, let's lead some European initiatives. Right. This is also a way to own something, uh, something European and promote it the right way at home, as politicians usually do want to do so, Right. for domestic reasons. It can increase the enthusiasm about uh, you know, being a European citizen and, and it can score uh, highly on the domestic front. So it can so we need to think a little bit more strategic how we can uh, provide these constructive ideas and lead these initiatives be it uh, connecting to maybe european defense uh, connecting to foreign policy why not talk about the global strategy maybe thinking about some kind of a health union these are just a few examples coming up this uh, activism It will also work domestically, but it will work on the EU level. And then this political will and this change or modernization of thinking about who can take these top jobs, who can lead Europe, uh, can change in time. And with that, uh, also the influence, constructive influence of Central and Eastern Europe can come along. And with that, then we can start talking about erasing some of these divisional lines that exist between West and East.
1: Thank you very much. So to finish up, that means we should get away from the traditional focus on the German-French motor and uh, diversify more, maybe even have some sort of decentralization away from Brussels, but also into the regions. When we look at the new member states and, and with Brexit, there is also a power shift. And you mentioned now Donald Tusk held the uh, position for um, two terms, uh, five years as president of the European Council. We had also uh, Jerzy Busek as uh, president of the parliament, both from Poland, which is, again, the biggest country of these central and eastern European uh, member states. Um, wouldn't you say we, we also should see that we diversify also with the little bit smaller countries in the region? And is there maybe a possibility to uh, build bridges with the newer and older, but medium-sized, I don't want to say it's small member countries and big member countries, but it's you know something that we can foster on that level, looking especially towards Austria and Slovakia in that sense.
0: No doubt. Uh, and this is uh, when during the first wave of the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, we saw actually already this type of groupings uh, re emerging or emerging new ones, uh, and namely talking, yes, uh, about uh, this cooperation between Austria, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, for example. This became much more lively and active. Uh, on the more regional scale when dealing and coordinating with the pandemic measures, this was in the spring. But what also showed is that uh, this cooperation can then solidify in, as a bridge, as you pointed out, between uh, uh, newer members, older members, between uh, older members, and can then provide this impetus for, for activism and, and initiatives, uh, ideas, uh, proposals, uh, that makes sense. Also, there is another newer grouping, uh, Central Europe Five. So this is also another way to, to kind of shift from this uh, focus on V4. Or you know, during during the summer we have Frugal Four Five. So there is an attempt to fill this vacuum left after UK leaving the, the block. We have to be honest. So far, we don't see in practice that these new groupings have been able to fill the vacuum. But those are new and they have potential. So we cannot uh, simply simply ignore the shifts and the changes. And as you pointed out, yes, uh, Poland has been the most successful, perhaps from Central and Eastern Europe in uh, jobs and also uh, hosting an agency. But uh, this shouldn't be Poland represents the whole region type of thinking. When we go to Brussels, right? Oh, there you go. Poland has an agency. It has had uh, top jobs already. Why there is a problem? There is definitely need for inclusion of others and there is definitely need of uh, switching it around in order to reboost and re-energize the region.
1: Vlady, thank you very much for your input and the expertise that you shared with us. We actually shared an office back in 2018 when I did a little bit of research on these multilateralisms. I think we should continue not only informing about this but also the cooperation between our two institutions. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was CEE Central Europe Explained, United in Diversity, an IDM podcast series powered by Asta Group. We are looking forward to the next episode. See you soon. And thank you very much, Vladi.
0: Thank you for having me. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum
1: und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European perspectives. Regional actions. Cooperation and expertise since 1953.